Hello and welcome to another podcast from Beyond Borders Scotland. I'm Steve Richards and it's a delight to introduce uh, one of the discussions at Beyond Borders that I chaired. The joy of this podcast is that you could be anywhere in the world and capture the essence of the Beyond Borders festival without having been there. And of course, if you were there, you can re-experience the discussions that were held on many different themes. On this podcast, uh, we explore in real depth the situation in Ukraine and the wider implications. Uh, And uh, I won't go into too much detail because you will hear my introduction to the event as it went out. But it was really exciting to have, for example, the head of the Ukrainian media centre, Andrei Shevchenko, maybe I pronounced it differently, live at the event. Um, But uh, he was there from Ukraine, actually, um, giving a distinct perspective. And then we had a wider discussion uh, with other brilliant specialists and great questions from the audience. Uh, I say I won't go to because you'll hear my introduction at the start of the podcast. Um, Now, this was recorded at an event some time ago, and the situation in Ukraine in some respects has changed since then, but not the fundamentals. And we explore the fundamentals and delve deep. So I hope you enjoy this podcast from the legendary Beyond Borders Festival. Thank you very much for joining us. I'll give a fuller introduction, uh, if that's okay, with all of you, just so it all kind of makes sense and fits into a context. Uh, As you probably know, uh, Andre. Shevchenko uh, is a prominent Ukrainian politician, diplomat, journalist. He was, between 2015 to 2021, uh, the Ukrainian ambassador to Canada, and prior to that, a member of the Ukrainian parliament. He joins us from Kiev, as you can see. Uh, Brian Bravati has done many things, but because we're short of time, I'm going to cite one of the relevant ones. He's written an edited collection of essays, Losing Afghanistan, the fall of Kabul and the end of Western intervention. He's also heavily involved with the situation in Ukraine. And Professor Phil O'Brien is Professor of Strategic Studies at the University of St. Andrews. Uh, So we've got a fantastic panel to put into context some of the things that are going to be happening tomorrow when Nicola Sturgeon comes. Um, And we'll have a chance for a wider discussion with all of you as well. So if I could begin by um, bringing in Andre Frop. C- can you hear us all here in uh, Beyond Borders? Fantastic. Thank you so much for uh, joining us. Could you give us a kind of broad assessment as we begin our discussion on what the current situation is in Ukraine? Do you want a short answer or a or a long a long one? Well, um, that's a good question. The short one. If we could have, begin with uh, the short one, please. I'll say uh, uh, we keep bleeding, we keep losing people, both on the civilian side and on the military side. The nation has switched to the marathon mode. We know, we understand that uh, the peace cannot be both good 
and quick. It will be either good or quick. And uh, we prefer to make sure that it's a good, sustainable piece. We feel that by now we have learned how to fight uh, the Russians and we know how to win over them. And I think there is a growing feeling here that we can win this war with the help of our friends, including many of those who are now in the hall in front of me. Okay, and I know uh, very sadly one of the many reasons why you can't be here with us is that you have lost your brother in this terrible conflict. I mean, is it the case that many of the people you know have lost relatives um, in uh, either on the front line or as a consequence of uh, this current war? I think by now every Ukrainian family has a story to tell. Someone has lost uh, a father or a brother like myself or a husband uh, or a friend. So it's a very personal story for, for everyone here. Um, my brother was a platoon commander in the, with the International Legion. He had three international squads uh, under his command and he had not lost a single sol soldier before his death uh, in the East. And he joined the armed forces on the very first day of invasion. It was his choice. He went uh, fighting as a volunteer. And it's quite a typical story. So yes, it's a very personal story. And we know that only with courage and only with sacrifice we can win this war. It's a very heavy price. Okay, uh, thank you for now. And I know there will be more about that particular uh, theme and your brother later in our session. Uh, could I bring in uh, Professor Phil O'Brien at this point? It's very interesting hearing Andre talk about both the terrible human loss and yet one way or another, the continued hope for victory. Now, you've studied this in uh, many different areas, the military aspect. First of all, I gather you, your assessment of the Russian uh, invasion is remain scathing. I mean, I know we heard early on what a series of catastrophes they were having, and so. Yeah. but your assessment remains that it's uh, damning. In terms of their objectives. The only reason I'm here is because in January I said the Russian army looks terrible. Right. Um, and it's not I, the only reason you're here, I'm well, sure. But I mean, but it's one. Of, it's interesting how this has happened. The Russian military is big in firepower terms, um, and it can do a huge amount of damage. But it's not what you would call a modern, flexible, intelligent military, and nothing that it does shows the ability to adapt in the way that the Ukrainians are clearly adapting in places we've seen like Snake Island and Crimea. And I've not seen anything in the Russian way of fighting this war that reveals that they're getting, in a sense, considerably better or learning and becoming an efficient military. In many ways, it's the opposite. A lot of their best soldiers were killed early in the war. Um, and a lot of their best equipment is, is wasted. Now, they still have a lot of equipment, but it's a question of, of you know, how long they can keep going. We are in, as we heard, we're in a terrible phase because we're in a phase of killing soldiers. The mm -hmm. front line hasn't moved. It's barely moved for a few weeks, just a little bit here and a little bit there. And we're in a phase, therefore, with the line not moving, and it's who will kill more of the other side. 
Right, right. Well, let, before I bring Brian in, could I return to you, Andre, to ask you, when you have conversations with your colleagues and friends, when you say, look, we can still win this, um, what do you mean by winning? What, what is victory for you? And then I'll ask our panel here to analyze what they think it might mean. So what, 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 what does it mean for you? Well, 92% of the Ukrainians, there is a recent poll and it says that 92% of the Ukrainians uh, would uh, not uh, feel it's a good peace if we don't ensure our territorial integrity and if we don't get back the land occupied by the Russians and the people. And uh, I, I think that we have come to, to quite, a, quite an interesting conclusion that... Uh, uh, I think we should review our belief that compromise is always good. It is not always possible, and it is, de is, is definitely not always good. Actually, quite often, compromise is impossible. There is not much compromise between life and death. I can hardly see any compromise between Russia trying to destroy Ukraine as a sovereign nation and us fighting for the very chance to live and survive. Uh, moreover, I think we should acknowledge that our obsession with uh, compromises and with freezing conflicts in different parts of the world, uh, I think it's not always good. And look across many hot spots for many decades, we believe that keeping them frozen conflicts will sooner or later bring something good and it does not necessarily work so uh, aside of those uh, general conclusions and going back to Ukraine, we believe that this is this is fight for our life. This is an existential threat. And for us, winning this war means to make sure that we can live within our borders and we can define our own destiny. Okay, uh, if I could bring Brian in. Um, obviously, we'll come to Afghanistan uh, shortly. And indeed, some of the implications, perhaps, what happened there as to what might happen in Ukraine. So we've heard Andre absolutely clear. Compromise is, is a bad thing. Um, there is only victory as in retaining the uh, pure interpretation of the sovereignty of Ukraine and its borders. And yet if you step back, they are facing uh, a, a, a mighty opponent, even though uh, Phil uh, says uh, it's been uh, handled appallingly so far from their perspective. Do you see the space for a total victory without compromise for Ukraine? Or do you accept, I know one of the guests at this uh, Beyond Borders this year, he was here last year talking about Afghanistan, Jonathan Powell. He told me recently, all these conflicts in the end require negotiation and therefore compromise. What, what's your view, having heard Andre's absolute clear view that victory means no compromise? Well, I think it, it's necessary and important for Andre and Ukrainians to be clear that their objective is absolute victory. But that doesn't mean that we in the West are going to give them the means to achieve that victory. It seems to me that the position that we're in now is that we will provide enough material for Ukraine to not be defeated, but we're not going to provide enough material or indeed 
soldiers on the ground for Ukraine to actually defeat Russia in this war. And what we are waiting for is a tipping point towards compromise. And if we reach that point, then we're going to see a profound political crisis within Ukraine. And if I can carry on speculating, what will then happen is, I believe, the Zelensky government will be forced into a position where it has to do a deal. And that deal will be fundamentally unacceptable to a large chunk of what is now a highly militarized Ukraine, which is, in a way, what Putin may well be playing for. So he retains the economic advantage of the Donbass, and he extracts the wealth that he wants to. He retains Crimea, and he leaves a Ukraine which is, in the end, at war with itself. And that's the worst possible outcome in many ways. Um, but I see it as the only realistic outcome. Much as I would support a victory for Ukraine, I don't believe, and Philip would know much more about this than me, but I don't believe they have the physical capacity to deliver that victory. OK, before I bring uh, Professor O'Brien in, could I come back to you, uh, uh, Andre, uh, with your reaction to Brian? I know you know each other well. Uh, he takes, well, not a different view as to, he understands why you see that as your objective but he outlines a rather different sequence than outright victory, a very different sequence. Um, I just wonder what your reaction, uh, you must have discussed it with him in the past, what your reaction to Brian's assessment is. I'm not sure I, I heard it well. Would you please repeat the key question? Right, could you... Well, in a, in a nutshell. In a nutshell. The West won't give you enough to win, but they'll give you enough not to lose. And then there will have to be a negotiation. Did you hear it that time? Yes. Uh, well, uh, we'll see. Uh, I think it's very important that uh, one year ago it was a discussion between us and all the rest of the world. And we were trying to say, look, it's not just our fight. It's, our, it's, it's important for all of us. Right now, I think it's more of an internal discussion among our friends, and we hope that this discussion will end uh, uh, with the right uh, decision. You see, uh, I believe that uh, it's no time for how uh, matters and for how measures. Um, I believe that Putin is not just the source of the problems we see. In many ways, he is a reflection of the ruling class in Russia, and unfortunately, he is the reflection of broad public opinion, up to 90% of the Russians support the war one way or another, and they want to see Poland and the Baltic countries uh, uh, the next, which means we will have to deal with this sooner or later. Even after Putin is gone, the problem will not uh, disappear. We'll have to deal with this maybe for generations, maybe for, for decades, if we don't do the right things uh, right now. So I do believe that we will come together to uh, real action, not half measures, and this is the way to win this one. Okay. Uh, where, where do you stand, Phil, on these uh, yeah. uh, uh, two different uh, interpretations, not of really what should happen, but what will happen? I mean, I, I suppose mine is a little more idiosyncratic. I actually don't... I think the Russian army has a lot of firepower, but it's actually not that big. And I think we have to understand, we almost think Red Army, Second World War, steamroller, huge. 
the army that went into Ukraine was probably smaller even than we thought, 200,000. If indeed the conservative estimates of 70,000 killed and wounded with replaced some, this army cannot fight for more than another year. The Russian army will run out of soldiers unless they mobilize. So actually, if the war is going to continue, you, you, Russia can't generate soldiers out of nothing. And any state-to-state -state warfare after a year requires conscription. If Second World War, World War I, any sort of large war that we know of requires conscription. Ukraine has conscripted. They've already got hundreds of thousands of soldiers. Putin has been too scared to conscript his own people. He's actually desperately worried about it. If he does not conscript, Russia cannot fight for more than another year. And I think that's what the Ukrainians might be looking at now, going through this stage of simply, as brutal as it is, destroying Russian soldiers to put that pressure on Putin um, to, to see what Putin, how serious he actually is and whether he's willing to take the risk with the Russian people. So I actually am more, I, I don't believe this Russian army is good or large enough to stay in the field for that long unless you have full societal mobilization. Okay, we'll um, have a look at what other levers uh, Putin might have available uh, to him, certainly to test the resolve of the West, in inverted commas. Uh, but can we do that via Afghanistan? Because you've obviously studied, Brian, mm -hmm. Afghanistan with, uh, we've just written a book on it, amongst other things. Um, I remember when uh, the US, Britain, and many others went into Kabul and reclaimed Kabul. And I remember Tony Blair making a statement in the Commons, this, we are determined, you know, this, this is not, they're not going to come back, the Taliban and so on, we are there as long as it takes. Within a year, I remember the then International Development Secretary, Claire Short, saying uh, she had visited Kabul. Uh, the Taliban were regrouping because US troops were going off to Iraq. That already interest and focus was going. And you know, and have written about what happened last this time a year ago. Um, are there any and perhaps ominous lessons about coherence, focus amongst the West, like the British Prime Minister and the next British Prime Minister saying we'll be with Andre until they've won um, in what happened with Afghanistan? So the, the book is an edited collection, and one of the essays is by Graham Cundy, who was the Royal Marine, who was with the Americans when the Taliban handed over, symbolically, the keys of Kabul, and the Americans and Graham handed over a large number of US dollars in exchange, and the city changed hands. From that moment until the withdrawal, I think what we see is a fairly systemic failure of nation building. We were even told at the end by Biden that this was never about nation building. This was about intervention to prevent terrorism. So 20 years and billions of dollars was never about nation building. Constructing whole new ministries and training a whole new generation of civil servants, that was never about nation building. So the history of Afghanistan is rewritten in first the Trump agreement and then Biden's fulfillment of that agreement. It was about nation building, but nation building failed for many reasons. And the people who pay the price of that are the Afghan people now, and in the future under the Taliban regime, however long it lasts. And many of the writers in the collections say they're very skeptical about how long the Taliban can actually govern. 
if you switch to Ukraine, if my scenario is right, and I hope to God it is not, we have a failed state in the center of Europe, which is at war with itself. We abandon that state, as we have done multiple other frozen conflicts around the world, when our attention moves on to whatever's next. After all, it was a year ago when the world's attention was on Afghanistan, and before that, Yemen, and before that, Syria. We seem to be able to think about one thing at a time yeah. in this field. And for now, we're thinking about Ukraine. And the Zelensky government has been brilliant at keeping us thinking about Ukraine. And Andre's work with the Ukraine Media Center has been brilliant at making sure that Western journalists keep their attention. But come winter and come fuel price hikes and come the real economic cost of what's happened in Europe, we will abandon Ukraine and force a deal in the same way that we abandoned Afghanistan um, to the Taliban last year. Could I ask, uh, Andrew, when you have conversations with, again, with colleagues and your own thoughts, um, we read here that in Ukraine, the current British Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, is something of a hero, which is uh, slightly unusual for us to read in Great Britain from a British perspective. He's, he's, he is about to leave number 10 in, uh, with a degree of controversy. But is that the case? Is he seen as one of the great heroes uh, of this war? And when you have deeper conversations with colleagues, do you all start to express doubts about the resolve of uh, countries in the West, as Brian mentioned, they're about to be, it's nowhere near what you're all going through, but these massive gas hikes, which the British government are blaming on Putin. Um, do you worry that the resolve uh, will fade? I am on the optimistic side, and um, I can just uh, reassure you that we are very grateful to what your country, what your nation uh, uh, has been doing to help us. And we know that uh, it's both across the aisle, politically, and across the islands. And uh, I would really like to thank uh, many friends uh, in the room that I see on my screen. That includes uh, Brian, who does a lot of and many others. And I'll tell you this, uh, courage is a very, is a hard currency these days in international politics. Without courage, we would not stand a chance against the Russians. And we do need that courage not only when, it, when it's about ourselves. Uh, I was glad to actually to see Kabul in the name of this panel. Uh, you probably remember that when the, when the Taliban brought hell to the Afghan capital, it was the Ukrainian special operation team which flew to Kabul and extracted an impressive number of local interpreters, fixers, journalists. There were no Ukrainians there. We had a war on our hands at home, but we went in into Afghanistan because we knew it was the right thing to do. We knew we were capable of doing that operation. And uh, that, included, uh, that included many, many uh, foreign nationals and I believe some uh, fixers and interpreters who worked with the British media. Uh, we went in because uh, our guys had a combat experience and because they had had some NATO training. But the main thing about the situation, they went there not because they were better soldiers than the Americans or, or the Canadians, but because uh, they had courage to do so. 
So sorry for this uh, long, uh, uh, long link to a different story, but uh, I think we should cherish courage. And in Ukraine, we do greatly cherish the courage of your country, of your government, of your politician, politicians across the aisle. We do believe that particularly the British support went a very long way in our situation. Okay, thank you. We're going to open up for questions in a minute. We'll have about 20 minutes for questions. But I want to bring uh, uh, Phil in uh, uh, before we do. I mean, it is one of the... I mean, you've studied many military conflicts. Mm. How wars end, of course, is a fascinating theme. How important are these other factors that we've been talking about, economic leverage, um, in, 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 in these military conflicts. I mean, it is hard to see, for example, uh, Germany's economy could yeah. be absolutely destroyed by this. And uh, we've be already talked about fuel prices in the UK. Mm -hmm. um, how big a factor is this? Uh, you know, Putin might have been doing badly in Ukraine with his army, as you uh, vividly described. But he's got many other levers, including this energy one. It's a great question. I mean, actually, in many ways, Afghanistan teaches us certain things about Ukraine when it comes to public opinion. I slightly disagree with Brian. Um, and actually, I know Brian, a lot of people believe that. If you look at U.S. public opinion, U.S. public opinion never gets bored of wars. Absolutely mm. fascinated by wars. Mm. Uh, <laughs> when the U.S. public opinion turns against war, it's one thing and one thing only when they don't think it's winnable. Uh -huh. Yeah. It has nothing to do with casualties. It has nothing to do with boredom. In fact, they're quite excited by war. What happened in Afghanistan is the U.S. public opinion decided this war is not winnable. They turned. And then, and then they could have pulled out at any time. Actually, Trump could have pulled out, Obama could have pulled out, and finally you know, Biden did because the American public opinion had already given up on that war and they'd given up on it years earlier. So in many ways, it's interesting how long it lasted without that. The threat for Ukraine, and by the way, this is where Western Europe doesn't matter. It's Eastern Europe and the US. That's what right, matters. Right. All right, it's the Baltics, it's Eastern Europe, Scandinavian states, and the US. And I think Eastern Europe, they're not gonna change public opinion. To them, Russia's existential. If you see the US, look at it through the Afghanistan prism. If the US public opinion ever says, Ukraine can't win, this is a quagmire, then absolutely, that's really dangerous for Ukraine. Um, and so I would use that as the lever. Politically, the Democrats actually seem like they're doing better in the midterms. Maybe if the Republicans had seized both, seized both houses of Congress in, in November, then you might have that pressure coming in the United States. But actually, it does seem now that the Democrats are doing better and will at least hold the Senate. This is still early days. So I don't see the public opinion pressure on Ukraine right now, unless the world war turns against them, that you would have seen with Afghanistan. Oh, that's interesting. Right, thank you very much. Now, Andrew, I, I know it's surreal when you're watching on Zoom, so just to let you know, I don't know whether you can see the audience, but we're now gonna bring the audience in. And if you can't hear the questions, I'll repeat them. So just to guide you through from where you're sitting um, a long way from here. So who would like to ra raise a question? If, uh, right, I can see two right away, so I'm gonna, oh, Three, four, right. Let's take there for first, please, and there, and then we'll take some more. Uh, thank you very much for your, all of your, what you've been saying. My question is for um, Professor O'Brien. 
you've just said that uh, the, the one of the important issues in this is, is Eastern Europe. My question is, what is what are your thoughts about the recent uh, decision by Hungary for Russia to build nuclear power plants in Hungary? Okay, before you answer, because we're going to have loads, I know. We're going to take two at a time. If you ask one, and we'll come. It was to elaborate on the Andre's mentioned 90% of the Russian people would support. Yeah. I mean, I, that's not the... Is that the, because he's managed the media so well? Good question. What is the, what is the 90% figure based on? Interesting question. Do you want to ask first? Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean, what's interesting, Hungary's always been pro-Russian throughout this war, and it hasn't made a difference. It would be more worrying if that sentiment went to Bulgaria, which seems to be on the cusp. Uh, certainly... Poland, the Baltics, Czech. Czech, by the way, could have been a very interesting one, but Czech seems to have been very, you know, gone into the pro-Ukrainian camp. So I, I wouldn't be that worried about Hungary per se. I'd be worried if you'd see it spreading to other parts of Eastern Europe and the Baltics. But if anything, Eastern Europe and the Baltics on the whole seem to be, be tougher than they were even in February. Thank you. Andre, did you hear, uh, there was a question, you, you mentioned in passing that you thought 90% of Russian public opinion was behind what Putin was doing and would be behind further uh, military ventures elsewhere. Um, we were quite intrigued, where did you get the 90% from? Was that a sort of rough guess calculation or is there some evidence of that level of support? And Why? I, I think the precise numbers would fall uh, somewhere between 80 and 90 percent. And uh, uh, the polls that I have seen were with, with Levada and with uh, something the Russians called Tsiom. Uh, and um, the range of questions uh, would be starting from do you support, uh, support the decision to send military into Ukraine? From do we believe that uh, that? Or Poland could be it could be a next uh, target, and uh, different uh, answers, different questions, different answers. But the range should be very high. I would say uh, astonishingly high. For uh, it's much higher than than I would personally expect. Uh, and is knowing, that uh, is that because of uh, media control, or that there is this almost kind of I don't know. Uh, you read a kind That's of... a good question when it, when it comes to, to public opinion uh, measurement in Russia. Uh, but the thing is, uh, we should recognize the fact that Ukraine's independence uh, has not been genuinely recognized by the wide Russian public. And uh, the, the Russian ruling political class and the military class uh, has uh, largely... Uh, has not accepted the Ukrainian independence. I think we have been laughing and uh, kind of uh, uh, not telling the full truth each to, to, to each other in the 90s. We kind of uh, uh, kind of convinced ourselves that the Russians would accept the collapse of the Soviet Union and independence. That has never actually happened. Never been the case. Okay, so thank you. Could, oh, yeah, of just course. Just very quickly yeah. jump in. It kind of connects those two points. The other two places to watch are Moldova and Georgia. Mm. And if Gazprom removes the gas subsidy in Moldova, then the Moldovan government is vulnerable. And Georgia's attitude has been very split between the prime minister and the president. They've been almost running in parallel different responses to the war. And that government, I think, is also um, vulnerable. Yeah. 
Okay, thank you very much. Uh, we'll come forward, but let's go back first. Uh, uh, yeah, a, a mic uh, where there's a hand up, but just so we get a range of uh, places in the hall. Thank you very much. Uh, my question is to Andre, um, uh, who I'm so honored to be able to see and speak to. I'm reading Anne Applebaum's book currently about the uh, famine, uh, the entirely deliberately caused famine in Ukraine in 1932, three, uh, and the causes of that. And it makes me realize this is a problem with deep, deep roots. And I'm utterly dispirited to hear uh, Brian saying that, uh, well, we'll give you enough not to lose, but we're not going to help you to win. It seems to me this must, absolutely must be won, not just for Ukraine, but for the wider world. And I come from a place of CND history and anti-war. This situation, to me, is existential. And I think I'd like to support Andre and hear the comments of the other guest. OK, thank, thank you very much. And anyone from that side, then we'll come down back, uh, back towards here. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. The mic's coming. Thank you. Um, question for Andre and also um, for Brian and Phillips. Is, there, is the position of the Ukrainians still that no territory whatsoever should and will be ceded? Um, or is that position starting to fray? And I'm just wondering, everybody's saying that wars come uh, to an end with negotiated settlement. And so what is the best case scenario, in your opinions? And what will the Ukrainians have to cede? Okay, uh, Andrew, if you heard that, I'll ask you that one. Given um, that you at the back were sort of wholly agreeing with Andre and, and, and being depressed by Brian, what, what's your response, Brian? People are usually depressed by me. Yeah. <laughs> what's your well, response? I, I, and then I, I'll I, ask Andre about uh, I, terrain and seeding. I absolutely agree with the settlement that we have to win this war, but it's interesting those wars that we choose to make existential and those that we do not. Defeat in Afghanistan was acceptable. We accepted the return of the Taliban. We have accepted a continual political crisis in Iraq. Um, we won't, many of us feel we won't and can't accept this conflict being a defeat for Ukraine because these are white Europeans. And that's why it becomes a conflict that is to us existential. And I think that's a proximity of history, which is totally understandable and real. And it, it's not something that we should um, deny. But it has huge consequences for the strategic patients that we might. So the hope for a better outcome is that the West's strategic patience surprises us this time, and that it remains supporting Andre. But I, I don't believe that strategic patience exists. Yeah, and, and obviously you followed it very closely in relation to Afghanistan. Andre, on, I mean, obviously you have said, I think in your first answer, that uh, you see no space for compromise in this. Um, and obviously the moment you start talking about ceding any territory, you are in the area you, see you, you say you don't want to go. But is there any, any space for any negotiation over any part of the territory in Ukraine? in your view? Well, uh, I know that your audience appreciates uh, good rational thinking and uh, practical thinking. 
So uh, let's just think this through. Ceding uh, territory uh, on behalf of Ukraine uh, will be uh, viewed by 90% of the Ukrainian population, and it's a polling data. It will be viewed uh, not as a victory, but uh, as, uh, as a loss. Uh, it doesn't just mean that it's going to be politically suicidal for any government to accept it. It means that every Ukrainian will live for generation that it's not a fair solution. Uh, I just simply don't see how this uh, might work. And when I see it, uh, we're not going to see any land that, of course, includes uh, Crimea. And I think, uh, going back to the international order point of view, those nations who have adopted this policy of no recognition of this uh, Crimean uh, annexation, they are on the right side of history, just like they were on the right side of history with uh, no recognition of the uh, occupation of the Baltic states in, uh, before, in, in the early stage of World War II. Uh, now, uh, let's think about Putin. Is there anyone in the room who believes that Putin and, uh, and the Kremlin will be satisfied with the land, with the Ukrainian land they have right now? Or they will be satisfied with Crimea or just with Donbass? Of course not. I, th I think it's absolutely clear that their goal is, is much bigger. They do not see Ukraine as an independent nation, they, and they will not stop until they either reach this goal or they will be ultimately stopped by, by all of us. So trying to be rational and practical on this, I just don't see how any sort of this semi-compromise might work. It uh, will not work for us and it will not work for the Russians. Okay. And the being, being a former ambassador, uh, I just simply don't see any space for genuine negotiation right now. Okay, thank you very much. Let's do some more. Yeah, at the front, and then we'll, we'll, we'll go somewhere else. The mic, the, the mic is coming. I think it's here in the front row, uh, in the middle of the front row. And then we'll go somewhere else. My question, in essence, is to all of you, but Andre, thank you for being here with us. Um, you mentioned that you thought that 80 to 90% of Russians were um, currently insufficiently aware of the issues to be other than apparently in favor of the war. What does the panel think might be the two things that would shift that position downward to 50 or 40 percent when negotiation might become a reality? Okay, that's interesting. How does uh, we'll, we'll come to, and then the, the guy up there on the right at the end. I think the mic can get you quite quickly. Um, over, over, over there, yeah. Thank you. And then we might have time for some more. I'm a bit dismayed by Brian Brian's comments about the fact that uh, we're we would not accept defeat in Ukraine because they're white. I I strongly disagree with that. The reason uh, defeat is acceptable in Afghanistan and Iraq is because we shouldn't have been there in the first place. But Ukraine is totally different. It's obviously very unfair for Ukraine, and that's why uh, it, the Russians should be defeated. Okay, thank you. It, uh, let's begin with the first point about, and Andre, did you hear it about Russian public opinion and what could change it? Now, we heard from uh, Professor O'Brien about how American public opinion changed in relation to Afghanistan, and that changed the government's position. Obviously, Russia is a wholly different 
situation, but are there factors that can change Russian public opinion? I'm quite skeptical and pessimistic about that in the short run, and I'm optimistic in the long run. Uh, we have seen uh, once in our lifetime when uh, uh, the refrigerator won over the TV set in the former Soviet Union, and that's how the USSR collapsed. I think we might see a remake of that, but uh, it's not going to be soon. Uh, I think it, it will become worse before it might uh, get uh, better. So right now, uh, I'm sorry to be very blunt on this, but I think any attempts to shift uh, public opinion in Russia at the moment is a waste of resources and a waste of time. If I had nine, or if I had nine lives as a cat, I would probably devote one of those lives for this noble cause. But uh, right now, I think it's uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's it's unfortunately it's a waste of time and resources. This will take a lot of time, and this will need a major stress to Russia before public opinion can actually can, can actually be free uh, to uh, to change. Okay, thank you very much. And Brian, the point that actually uh, Iraq and Afghanistan were wholly incomparably different because they were mistakes. And I think you were saying, um, and right. compared with Ukraine, sure. and that's the issue, not. They were, they were very different for many different reasons. I, I, I concede the point. Um, but I think there's a fundamental difference between a state-on-state -state war in the center of Europe and our reaction to that to a state-on-state -state war in somewhere like the Democratic Republic of the Congo, where Rwanda is fighting a war over resources. It's a state-on-state -state war which barely resonates in international commentary and the international community. So I, I think that's more what I'm saying. I'm saying Ukraine quite rightly gets attention because, as, as Phil said, it's a state-on-state -state war. But also we have a profound connection to it because of proximity of history and culture. And that's why we may have some more strategic patience for this conflict than we've had for others. But I still don't believe we'll have enough. OK, we've got time. We've got to end on time. It's going to have time for one more question um and i'm going to ask you because the mic will come to you quickly oh, well, I, you 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 decide but i'm afraid it's only one because we've got to end on time oh, why don't you both ask very quick questions and maybe we'll get very um okay yes i'm flowers um by the way kingston university seems to have quite a field day today we've got the professor of european culture over yes, there president oh, right. brian Bavati, and okay. i've been doing things with ukraine for a while but the main question here is i'd like to follow up that lady because We've been talking about territory. There's also about the treaty at the end, and I don't think we've heard about the broader aspect of this. Now, I've had to explain the Budapest Memorandum more times than probably I'd hope breakfast, because that was a thoroughly insufficient, the word guarantee in Russian, the word uh, assurance in English, that was a fudge. Kravchenko, I, I know, felt he was deceived. Okay, so, so the treaty, what do you see as the other aspects the security guarantees issues. Can that not come into the equation with some understanding of what the Russian people need? Okay. Uh, the, the treaty at the end of a negotiation, you mean what form might it take in terms of... Okay. Okay. Uh, b both panellists here, and then I'll have a final word with Andre. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, and one, yes, there will be a treaty because actually Russia can't conquer Ukraine and Ukraine can't conquer Russia. 
So actually, the, the conditions of not, and wars do end without treaties, like the Second World War, but you have to conquer the other side and basically tell it what to do. And that's not going to happen here on either side. Ukraine is unconquerable. So you will have a treaty which ends it, and the key question will be, what will the security guarantees be for Ukraine? They're not going to be for Russia, because Ukraine does not represent an existential threat to Russia. So it, it simply doesn't. You know, Russia's, Russia's there. So it's what kind of security guarantees Ukraine will actually feel comfortable with for make them stop fighting. Because remember, it's going to be harder to make Ukraine stop fighting eventually than Russia. It's usually the invader that runs out of steam before the country being invaded, because the country being invaded feels the existential threat. So I think it's what kind of security guarantee you can guarantee for Ukraine. And my guess is it will probably be something like EU membership, but maybe not NATO. Yeah, that you, you reach that kind of deal where there is you know, integration of Ukraine into EU, um, which will then, which by the way, has security guarantees within it. And the idea of invading an EU country is very different than invading a non-EU country. Imagine the reaction. So you don't actually have to go to NATO if you create some kind of deal like that. Brian? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the thing about NATO, and Andre will correct me if I'm wrong, is there'd have to be a new constitution in Ukraine if NATO membership were no longer on the agenda, which would involve potentially, and there was talk of this for a moment early on in the war, the idea of a referendum was floated to change the constitution so the NATO path was closed. We haven't heard any more about that. But I agree broadly. I think the EU needs to stay on the table because that actually provides the security guarantees that Ukraine needs. NATO is probably more negotiable. Okay, thank you. I've got one uh, announcement to make uh, briefly, but first of all, before that, I want to thank the panel who have been fantastic. And thank you, Andre, coming uh, from Kiev today. Thank you so much. Shall I make that announcement? Speak now, that you. And as we mentioned at the beginning, Andre's uh, brother sadly died in this uh, conflict that we've been exploring in our time together. And Beyond Borders is going to be paying a tribute to Andre's uh, brother. And a tree has been carved in the shape of a pencil. It's outside here. And we invite you all to send a postcard to the people of Ukraine and indeed Afghanistan um, in the context that you can see on the wall. And Andrea, I don't think, I don't know whether you're still here you and can, can see it. it. You can, you can see, see it. it. Um, this is part of Beyond Borders tribute to your brother. And thank you again for attending today. Thank the panel again and all of you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, this is Andre's brother. On behalf of all the Ukrainians, thank you very much.